Yeah, Hebrews chapter 10, New Testament, almost to the end of the Bible, go almost to Revelation, back it up, put it in reverse, Terry, go back a few books, and you're going to find Hebrews, so Hebrews chapter 10. All right, and while you are finding that, one of the most famous works of fantasy literature is Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. How many of you have seen the movies, the Lord of the Rings movies? Okay, some of you have, a lot of you have. How many of you have read the books? All right, they're not an easy read, but they're a fantastic read. Authored by Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien. Many of his fans, though, are unaware. He didn't just write The Lord of the Rings. He wrote a lot of other works. And one of them is an essay called Leaf by Niggle. Leaf by Niggle. It's a short story. It's about an artist named Niggle. Now, everybody listen to this because this is pretty cool. An artist named Niggle who lived in a society that did not appreciate art, but he was consumed by a desire to paint a great tree. He wanted to paint a great tree, and he urgently went about it, sensing that he soon must go on a long journey. He envisioned this great tree in his mind. He could picture it, and it had a forest behind it, and in the distance, a snow-capped mountain. And he began his painting by painting a single leaf of the tree. But Niggle was not a very successful painter, partly because he had so many interruptions. You see, his neighbor, Mr. Parrish, would stop by over and over asking for help for this and help for that. And Niggle was a very kind-hearted man, and he always helped. But all the while, he kept thinking of his great painting that he could see in his mind, but he could hardly make any progress on it. At one point, sensing that long journey that was nearing to him, he concentrated with everything he had. He put everything he had into his work and try as he might, he just could not paint a picture that would meet his expectations. He just couldn't get the picture in his mind out on the canvas. Well, he wouldn't give up, but a a storm blew in. And in the middle of the storm, Mr. Parrish came over and he knocked on Niggle's door. And he said to Niggle, my roof is leaking. And Mrs. Parrish had to move downstairs. She's become sick from the wet and the cold. And he urgently asked Niggle, will you please go into town, fetch the carpenter and fetch the doctor. We need them both So Nigel did. He got onto his bicycle and he pedaled through the wind and he pedaled through the storm and he soon became sick himself and he feverishly attacked his painting, but he grew even more sick and then he died without completing even that one leaf. Death, it turned out, was the journey he knew he had to make. He just didn't know he was going to die. And on this journey, he's riding a train on into the hereafter. And he got off because the train stopped. And when he got off of the train, he saw there, leaning against the gate, his old bicycle. 
So he got on his bicycle and he pedaled off for a spin and he's riding along on this road and he's approaching a tree in the distance and as he got ever closer, he suddenly realized this was his tree. This was the tree that he could imagine. This is the tree that he wanted to finish, but he never could. But now the tree is finished. It's exactly what he had pictured. It's beautiful. And every single leaf was unique on its great branches. And he's gazing at it. He is in stunned wonder. And he began to see even more closely that the most beautiful leaves... Now listen, and I'm going to quote were seen to have been produced in collaboration with Mr. Parrish. There was no other way of putting it, Tolkien said. See, the truth is that all the while that Nigel was bothered by his neighbor's interruptions, it was those very interruptions that made his life's work such a masterpiece of art. Leaf by Niggle is a wonderful little story and one that can help us approach our passage that we're going to look at today. You see, I want you to listen. We are designed by God to live life with other people. And in fact, I hope you hear this, you cannot reach your full potential without the contribution of other people in your life. I mean, I'm going to take you all the way back to the very first chapter of the Bible for just a moment. You'll see it on the screen. God said in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And what he's revealing there to us is that every single human being is created in the image of God. But listen, we are created to live with us in our in mind. See, if God is interpersonal and we are created to be like him in his image, then we must have been created to be interpersonal. We are meant to live in community. And yet community is what many of us do the least well. Well, some of us are like another of Tolkien's characters from The Lord of the Rings. His name was Bilbo Baggins who said to all of the village that was gathered to celebrate his 111th birthday, he said these words, I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. Now I'm going to let you puzzle that out for a while, and then we're going to discover what it means to encourage one another, why we are to learn how to do that, and how we can learn to do it well. So here we go. I've got three points and the first one is this. What does it mean to encourage one another? Now, you have your Bibles open? Remember, there's a Bible in front of you if you don't. And if you have a hard time reading that small print, we'll put it up on big, big print up on the screens. And here's what verse 23 begins to say. Hebrews 10. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. All right, well, now we have a task in front of us. You have this task as well as I do. What does it mean 
to encourage one another. Now, the book of Hebrews is an incredible letter. It's actually a letter, 13 chapters long. But a lot of Christians avoid reading it. A lot of Christians avoid studying it. You should not. It's an incredible letter. It's one of the most lofty letters in all of the New Testament. It was written for the purpose of helping God's people persevere in their faith so that they would not fall away into unbelief. You see, that was a problem in the early church, just like it's a problem today in the modern church. Christian after Christian, person after person in the church gets discouraged, falls in love with the world, and they fall away. In fact, the entire letter is written to prevent that or to help prevent that. Here's a sampling. I'll give you five sample verses from Hebrews. Follow them on the screen, if you would. Hebrews 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You see, you can drift. Now, pause for just a moment. Let me give you a quick timeout. Can everybody look at me for just a moment? Some of you are not looking at me. I really, really want you to hear this. When you come to church and we are opening up the word of God to you, you must pay attention to it. And you must ask the questions, God, what are you speaking to me? Forget your neighbor. Forget the one sitting beside you. Don't say in your mind, oh my goodness, I hope that person's hearing this. They really need to hear this. What are you hearing? What is God speaking as if his lips are whispering into the ears of your soul? Listen, if you do not come to church expecting that God is going to speak to you through his word, I honestly don't know why you would want to come to church. You will leave the way you came. That's not the purpose of church. That's not the purpose of preaching. So you must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, particularly the word of God. Well, Hebrews goes on, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Did you know you can fall away from God? I'm not talking about losing your salvation. That isn't possible. What I'm talking about is you get an interest in God. You begin to pursue God. You get a bit of a sampling of the Spirit of God in a worship service. And then because you have an evil or an unbelieving heart, no, that can't be true. No, I won't believe that. You will fall away from the living God, you must be careful of that. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conf confidence firm to the end. God has his hands over your hands of faith, brothers and sisters in Christ. He is holding you to that. But you must grip it. You must learn it. You must not drift away from it. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And finally, Hebrews 12, consider him who endured from sinners, this is Jesus, such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted." Do you not see the entire book of Hebrews is meant to help you endure to the end of your life with your faith? But what Hebrews does so powerfully is that it shows us you cannot endure alone. You will not make it to the end alone. God's people, all of them, all of us, must learn to be, verse 25, Hebrews 10, encouraging one another. Now, I've given you the reason for the book of Hebrews. Now, I'm going to tell you what encouraging one another actually means. Are you ready for this? This is absolutely important. You listen. In just plain English, the word encouraging, it's a verb. You do it in action. You live it out. It means to breathe courage into. That's the prefix N. N, courage. You breathe courage into somebody. They're lacking it. You possess it. You take what you have and you breathe it into somebody else. Now, let's make sure you understand. I don't mean go up to somebody that's struggling and exhale in their face. That's not what I mean. You live in such a way as that you can encourage them, as you can affect them, as you can take what you have and give to them and you speak it into them, you demonstrate it into them, you appeal it into them, you plead it into them, you encourage, breathing courage into another. Now that's just plain English, but let me now get you behind the Greek. Remember, the New Testament's translated almost all of it from the Greek language, and the Greek language is stunning in its beauty. The, the word encouraging is the Greek word parakaleo. Parakaleo, which means to call or come alongside somebody to help. It means to call, I need help. Or to see that somebody's in help and you intentionally go and help them. It's a word for people who are stuck. They're stuck in fear, maybe. They're stuck in misery, maybe. Stuck in grief, maybe. Stuck in sin, maybe. Stuck in their suffering. I'll give you two examples how the Greek word was actually used in real life. Let's say you're a sailor on a ship. And the main mast that holds your sail that moves your ship in a storm cracks in half. And your ship cannot move. And you hoist a flag. It was a signal so that any other ship passing can see the distress flag and come alongside, tie up to your ship, and come over and help make the repairs. And if they can't repair your boat in the middle of the ocean, then they tow you to the nearest harbor. That happened all the time. Parakaleo was the word for this. 
All right, well, maybe this one will appeal a little bit more, make a little bit more sense. Let's say you're a soldier, and you're in the army, and you're fighting another army. You're about to go to battle, and that army is twice as big as yours. They are known for their savagery, and you are absolutely terrified. You are absolutely full of fear. You are in your lines. You are in rank, but you are absolutely afraid of what's about to happen. All of a sudden, here comes your general riding on his horse going up and down the lines, the ranks, and encouraging parakaleo, reminding you of your training, reminding you to be the shield bearer to your brother, reminding you of the wars you've won, the battles you've been victorious of, reminding that you're going to win this, that you'll be home to your family soon, reminding you to fight with everything you've got. That's encouragement. That's breathing courage into those who lack it. That's parakaleo. And this is what we are to do for one another. Why? Why are we to encourage? Why are we to practice parakaleo with one another? Well, there's a strong admonition. Look at your Bibles again. Hebrews 10, verse 25. It's going to give us the why. It says, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, the day, look at your Bible, it's in capital D. That's a definite day. That's the day of the return of Jesus. And we are given by the writer of Hebrews several exhortations, several commands. Look at verse 24. We are to stir up one another. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Verse 24. You know that word stir up? Can everybody look at that for a moment? That's the word paroxysm in the Greek. That's a non-epileptic seizure word. That's for somebody having a seizure that doesn't have epilepsy. It means to provoke someone passionately to action. That's what it means to stir up. And we are to consider. That's in the constant tense. We're always to be considering constantly. How can we stimulate? How can we stir up a strong desire in that person to love and to give and demonstrate and live good works? You see somebody that's not walking with the Lord. There ought to be a paroxysm in you that you can create a paroxysm in them that you can pleadingly, passionately encourage them, breathe courage into them, that they would walk faithfully with their God, that they would love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, love their neighbor as themselves. You're thinking, how can I encourage them to that end? That's what it means to stir up and to consider There's an old prayer that goes like this. Lord, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Now, I want you to think about that. Sometimes Christians can get stuck. And you need to put your arm around their shoulders. Comfort the afflicted. But there are times where you need to spur them on to get them moving. You need to have some teeth in your encouragement. 
You need to have some strength and your encouragement. Always love, but you need to have some boldness in your encouragement. Do you remember that story I told you, Leaf by Niggle by Tolkien? He wrote that book, friends, to express his own struggle in completing books. He was a terrible, terrible, terrible procrastinator. It took him 12 years to finish The Lord of the Rings. He was so easily distracted. He had a very good friend that you might have heard of. His name was C.S. Lewis. They formed a writing group called the Inkling Club. C.S. Lewis once said this about his friend Tolkien. He says, Tolkien has no harm in him. He only needs a smack or so. And, and Lewis would give that smack by giving J.R.R. Tolkien, some loving criticism of his writing, and Tolkien would do the same thing for Lewis's writing. In fact, it's doubtful that either Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia would even exist if not for the ability in each of those writers to come alongside, comfort and afflict, breathe in encouragement, stir up one another in order to write. They were phenomenally effective for each other. We are to stir each other up to love and good works, not to sin. I tell you what, that's natural to stir people up to sin, to flirt with somebody that is not your spouse, and yet you're married. That's coming from your flesh. To dare someone to do something that is unethical or illegal to breathe courage into somebody to go to sin is natural to our flesh. No, we are to stir up people to love and good works, but that stirring happens as we are not neglecting, verse 25, to meet together, which meant gather together to worship God. You know, I want to tell you something. There's a very concerning trend that's happening all over America in churches where scores of people who love God, who appreciate the church, and even serve in the church are attending less and less. You see them maybe twice a month, more accurately, once a month. And the reasons are many, like kids, sports activities. You have blended families. You have more blended families. One week their kids are at this parent, and then next weekend they're at the other parent. You've got online options. You've got just simple laziness. The overall issue, though, and I might be speaking to some of you who don't really come very often and you're not involved in serving here. I might be speaking to you, so if you can brace yourself, just listen to this. I believe the number one overall issue, why are we seeing people who profess and identify to be Christians coming less often? I think it's exactly what Jesus said would happen as a sign of the end of the age, that the day, capital D, was coming. Because Jesus said this, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. I think it's hard to disagree, isn't it? That we are witnessing the rise of lawlessness in our culture. Aren't you seeing this? Aren't you watching 
the very deliberate attacks now going expressly and directly to our children in this country? You're seeing lawlessness on the rise, and it is exponentially rising. It is escalating at an urgently fast pace, but you've got something that Jesus said will go with it. You've got the dimming of love. You've got people who are in church who profess to be Christians who don't really put that much of a priority on coming together to worship God. And loving each other through getting involved in community groups, living life on life with each other. It's dimming. Worshiping God together with his people is just not that important to many, many, many in the church. And the very opposite should be happening. It is vital that we meet together. It is vital that we stir up one another with, another with passionate efforts. It's vital that we help each other hold to the confession of our faith. It is, it is vital, and it's going to become more vital. It's going to become more critical. But there might be a cynic here, and I wouldn't blame you if you are. There usually is in church who's thinking right now, well, I made it this far without help from others. I can make it the rest of the way. Well, if you're thinking that, I've got two concerns for you. And one is lawlessness is only now beginning to rise. It will get far, far worse. And it will become incredibly difficult for Christians. That's one of my concerns. You're not here now. You're not helping people endure to the end now. Nobody's helping really you endure to the end. Don't count your spouse. Spouses really aren't the best one to help you endure to the end. They're part of it, but they're not always the best. You need people in the church. Men, you need men. Women, you need women. Teens, you need teens. But I have a second concern, and it's if you are one who worships with your church irregularly, you're not here very often. You're not in any church very often. Well, I want to ask you a question. Do you really believe that you are actually living the way God desires? I would boldly tell you that your walk with God cannot be what he desires. It just cannot be. If you are not regularly meeting for worship and serving the body of Christ with faithfulness and stirring others up and encouraging them in their faith, you cannot be walking in a way that God desires. And do not be surprised if the discipline of God comes upon you. It is meant not to hurt you and punish you, but to turn you back to God. You are not an obedient child of God. So it comes down to a very important question. Not just what is encouraging others mean, meaning, and not just why are we to encourage one another, but the third one, and this is really critical, how are we to encourage one another? We must stir each other up to love and good works, and sometimes that means that you go to a brother, watch, this is what it can look like, you go to a brother or sister, and you say to them, you are not loving well. You have not forgiven well. You are holding a, a grudge. It is toxic. It is going to destroy you from the inside out. 
It might be urgently pleading with someone to trust God in their storm. Their hands are slipping off of their faith and you come around them and you lend them your strength. You breathe courage into them. Do not give up on God. He is faithful. It might be to exhort a fellow believer. That's parakaleo as well, but with some teeth. It might be to exhort a fellow believer to serve faithfully, turn away from sin. It's robbing you of joy. It might be to honor someone for the excellent example that that person is to the church. Whatever it is, every single Christian has the responsibility to encourage one another. But how do we learn to do this well? How do we learn to do it? And that's really, really where everything boils down. I'm going to give you a little-known secret to loving like Jesus, one that is so clear, so simple, and you can evaluate right now. In fact, I would invite you to do this. You can evaluate right now whether you know this secret, and the way you can evaluate is to see if it's actually living out in your life. So I'm going to tell you a secret. It's so profound And it's so simple that Christians in America neglect it. They say, no, it's not practical enough. It's not pragmatic enough, meaning I need three steps. I need to have the guidelines to it. Give me the architectural plans. Give me the drawings. Give me the the way to do it, and then I can do it. Well, there is no way to do it. It's just very, very simple, though, but incredibly neglected. And it may be neglected by you. Therefore, you're probably not growing in Christ nearly like you could. Here's the first nibble at it. You ready? And then I'm really going to bring it for you. Here's the secret. It starts with this. The way that God chooses to change us and transform us is always inside out. The very best of the world tries to change you from the outside in. That's not the way God does it. That's not the way the gospel works. God changes us from the inside out. Here's how he does it. He gives you new desires to live in the way that pleases him. He gives you power to obey. He gives you new affections He gives you new goals. He gives you a new mind. He gives you a new perspective. He gives you a new purpose. And all of that detonates inside of you, way, way down deep in your heart. And it begins to expand the explosion bubble all the way out to your extremities until all of a sudden, you don't really like looking at what you used to look like on the internet. It's not even really a desire for you anymore. And the anger that used to just come in a moment towards anybody that crosses you, all of a sudden you're more patient. And the people that you could not stand, you begin to have some compassion for. And you're wondering, when did all of this happen? When did all of this change in me? It happened so deeply, you're not even aware of it. I'm only nibbling at the edges. I haven't told you how yet. I'm just telling you how God changes you inside out. How do you get that change? Here it is. the most amazing verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Man, people, memorize this. 
Make this your life verse. You will not regret it. And we all with unveiled face, meaning you're a Christian. God has stripped away the old flesh. He stripped away the veil that you could not understand God. He's given you a new mind. With an unveiled face, Christians, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, the more you behold the glory of the Lord, that's Jesus, the more transforming he's going to do from the inside out, and you'll go from one degree to another, from that degree to another, that degree to another, more and more so that you begin to resemble the character of Jesus. You love like Jesus. You hate sin like Jesus. You are patient like Jesus. You are merciful like Jesus. And it's all because you've learned and you've disciplined yourself to begin beholding the glory of the Lord. But what does that mean to behold the glory of God? It means to consider him. It means to look into his word, the mirror, the mirror that reflects the perfections of God. You begin to look into the mirror called the word of God, and you begin to look so that you can see the beauty of Jesus and the character of Jesus so that it begins to fill your vision, fill your mind, and all the while the spirit of God is taking what you are seeing about Jesus, and he's doing a work of revelation and revolution and transformation inside your heart so that all of a sudden, you are becoming more like Jesus. You cannot wait to breathe courage into other people because you're living life for them and not for yourself. Now, I took a big chunk out of that, but I haven't yet gotten to the beauty in the middle. I've told you how, but now I'm going to demonstrate and illustrate it. If you have your Bibles open, look at just the verses before the ones that we are looking at in Hebrews 10, because now you're going to see how to do it. Because in verse 19, the writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Well, what does all of this mean? I'm going to make it so simple to you. Listen, here's what it means. You're beholding Jesus. Well, let me help you do that. You ready? How do you behold him? You look into his word. Look at Jesus, who in a little village, outside at the city well, meets a woman that's been married five times, and now she's living with a man in sin. And Jesus knows. Look at his face. You don't see scorn. You don't see judgmentalism. You don't see criticism. You don't see hatred. You see love. And you see and you hear him call her. If you only knew that I can give you living water because I am living water and I can change your life from the inside out, will you believe on me? And you know what? She did. 
She became an evangelist in her village. Look at Jesus, who had a disciple named Peter. Over and over and over, Peter would fail. He always spoke before he thought. He always had a higher opinion of himself than the reality. And he denied Jesus three times in front of a lowly servant girl outside of the high priest's home the night that Jesus was being beaten. And right after he came back to life, Jesus said, go get Peter. Why did he mention Peter specifically? Because it's time to restore Peter. And he came alongside him on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he asked him three times, Peter, do you love me more than these? Don't you know what he was doing? This is the mercy of Jesus that is new every morning. Haven't you blown it? Haven't you blown it repeatedly? Haven't you done the same sin hundreds and maybe thousands of times? Do you really think Jesus is ever going to give up on you? No, behold him. See what he's like in the perfect word and let that bring you to Jesus with confidence. He is your great priest. He is the one bringing you to the Father. It's his mercy that is coming back to you. Let the love of Jesus pull you back into reconciliation. Oh, friends, we could do this for days. Look at Jesus. The number one dinner guest at a, at a Pharisee's home named Simon. And this was a dinner party, so they're all reclining on cushions with their heads near the low coffee tables and their legs trailing away at an angle. And there's so many Pharisees, so many, so many Jewish leaders and religious men in there. And sneaking in through the, the kitchen comes a woman of the night, a woman of the city, a prostitute. She comes in and she falls down at his feet it begins to weep. And her tears are just smothering the feet of, her, of our Savior. And she takes her hair out, something that no Jewish woman ever did outside of her own bedroom with her husband. Takes her hair out, lets it loose. It was long, and it falls down in front of her weeping face. And she uses her, her own hair as a towel to clean the tears and the dirt and the dust and the grime off the feet of Jesus. Simon is whispering and thinking, oh, if he only knew what she was doing last night if he only knew who it was that's touching him, he would puke. And Jesus knew what he was thinking. He says to him, Simon, she's treating me better than you. And then he looks at her with love and he sends her out with grace and mercy and changes her life. Can't you see Jesus? Can't you behold him? If you want to change and you want to be transformed, it always happens from the inside out. And it only happens one way, and that is by beholding the glory of the Lord. 
seeing Jesus as the word of God revealed them. Well, I don't like reading. I don't like the Bible. Then you get used to where you are because you're not going to change. But if you want to change, you go back to the Bible, Old Testament and New, because Jesus is all over it. And you behold him. And watch what he does. Your confidence in God's forgiveness will obliterate your sense of shame and the failure that beats you up, it will diminish more and more. You will know who it is that has loved you and called you, and you will flee, and you will run, and you will every day long to be in his presence. Well, I'm about to end, but let me take you back to the beginning. Mr. Niggle needed Mr. Parrish. Tolkien needed his Lewis, and we need each other we need people to breathe courage into us. And you need to learn to breathe courage into others. But you cannot give what you don't possess. You cannot send out what you have not received. So let Jesus, your great priest, breathe courage into you so that you can get it out to other people. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, for your word. Father, thank you for these one another's. Lord, help us to love like Jesus and help that to be what we experience, Lord, in this church. I pray that every single person, both online and here, Father, that we will make it an utmost priority to be here every single week so that we will not drift away, so that we will learn you, that we will come closer to you, and that we will breathe courage into one another. Lord, help us learn to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.